Well, good morning. Grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We are in a series that we've entitled My Christmas Story, and uh, this week we talk about the subject of Christmas being all about Jesus. It's uh, always nice. I like these uh, weeks where we're, we're down in attendance. It's cozy. It feels like uh, uh, we can just sit back on a cold day and just open God's Word and uh, uh, like a small little family enjoy uh, this. So uh, I don't mind having a, a small group. It reminds me of where Village was not too long ago. And uh, uh, it's been neat to see how the Lord has uh, grown things uh, in the past couple of years. I, I got to tell you, before I even get into my message, I Ray said that uh, he thanked God for the gift that I have of preaching. I learned one of the gifts I don't have is uh, overseeing the PowerPoint. That is a stressful job. I thought doing this was stressful. Man, your finger cramps up. You know, Are you going to do it? Are you not going to do it? I tell you what, I don't want to ever do that job again. Uh, it is a it is a stressful job, and I uh, hats off to everyone who uh, participates in that. We're uh, substituting uh, for some people that aren't making and weren't able to make it today, and uh, I'm going to give them a whole lot of uh, uh, of my mind uh, as a result of them not showing up. But I'll preach. They'll do the PowerPoint, and we'll call it a day. Christmas is all about Jesus. We've been in this series that we've been looking at, uh, the epic story of Christmas, the first Christmas story, and applying it to our own lives. The only way that we can really understand the transforming power of Christmas is by going back to that story. And we've looked at uh, the story of joy that came when Mary was announced uh, by Gabriel that she would have a child. We looked at that Christmas uh, wasn't just stories about average Joes. And we looked at Joseph and the incredible things that he did, even though he was just like you and I, the obedience that he showed uh, to the world, as we read in the story that was given in Scripture. But today we look at Jesus and we look at how Christmas is all about Jesus. Just like that uh, video clip showed we need to rediscover Christmas. We need to uh, maybe a little bit minimize all the activities that we're a part of and center our focus on Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to do that these days. Now, i got to give you a confession. I'm a Scrooge when it comes to Christmas. I married a woman who absolutely loves the Christmas season. If it was up to her, it would start in October and end in May, and then it would be summertime for the rest of the time, and then Christmas for that other part of the year. But for me, I, I could take it and leave it. I, I, I could find myself uh, uh, maybe a couple weeks of Christmas, maybe uh, uh, even just this week of Christmas. I find myself uh, kind of turned off by all the different things uh, that Christmas is a part of. Not that I don't like the story of Christ, but my struggle is is that here in America especially, that's not what we celebrate. I find myself at the, uh, as I look at the holiday times, I, I become a little bit uh, disappointed because each year we do the same things. We sing the same songs. We open the same gifts. We eat the same food. We see the same people. We decorate that, that same tree. 
We put out the same lights, and at the end of the year, the same feeling comes after it. And that's remorse. We should have done this. We should have bought that gift. We, we should have invited these people. We should have sent those people cards. And while we enjoy this part of the season, and I will uh, not debate that many of you would say this is the most wonderful time of the year, uh, my struggle is is that it doesn't change who we are. While this year, this part of the year is a, an amazing part of the year for many of us, it seems that as soon as all the hoopla is over, there's this letdown. Have you ever been, uh, maybe as a child, I remember this, on, uh, on the 25th, uh, heading home after holiday activities and this sense of letdown. It's over. Now it's back to the real world. Now it's back to, um, you know, life. Now it's back to going to work or going to school. And yet, I don't think that's what the biblical story of Christmas is trying to do or trying to accomplish. Because as we know, God's Word is life transforming. The story of Christmas that's recorded in Luke and Matthew and, and other parts of the Scripture should transform our lives. We shouldn't go to the text and read it and after we're done say, well, that was a nice story and uh, now we're back to life. But it should transform the way we look at life. It should change us. We should never be the same as a result of it. And yet we find ourselves so many times focused in on the stuff. When was the last time you focused in on the real meaning of Christmas? I want you to think about all the activities you've been a part of in these last weeks. The putting together of the Christmas cards. The baking. Uh, the uh, spending time listening to uh, Christmas music. The uh, time out spending money buying gifts for people you don't even like. That's what I always tell my wife. I said, we don't even like them. Why? And, uh, and she says, because that's what we do. And I said, okay. And then I always think it's, it's funny. We, we just transfer cash is what happens. And they're always richer than you are. It's like, why, why would I do that? You know, it costs me more than it costs them. And, and we give them a gift card and they give us a gift card. And why don't we just call it even and just say, hey, it's good to see you. God bless you. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm sorry. And that makes me a bit of a Scrooge. Uh, my uh, family uh, was out with uh, John and Lori Pilkington and their kids, and, and they wanted to go to Leonard's Avenue in Aurora. And, and I, I've been there before, seen it, done it, Charlie Brown, Jesus, all meshed together. And, uh, and uh, I learned John Pilkington's a far better father than I am. He's, he's eating this stuff up. He's enjoying it. I'm sleeping in the other side of the truck and uh, just saying, just tell me when it's time to eat because uh, uh, I'll be ready for that. But it seems like he would say, Tim, you know, come on, this is the Christmas Sunday message. Where, where is the joy? Where is the excitement? Where is the celebration? Well, I'm sorry, it's 40 below zero outside. And uh, it just doesn't feel like you should be celebrating Christmas. No, you know, all that stuff is wonderful. All that stuff, you know, even the, the secular things, I, I'm fine with it. I don't, I, I don't hold any hard or fast rules when it comes to Santa and Rudolph and Frosty and all that. Where I hold a hard and fast rule is when it comes into the amount of time we invest in those things. Those are kids' stories. Those are, are fun things that you can, you can enjoy. Uh, and for the world, that may be a big part of your life. But my friends, this celebration 
long before Santa, long before Rudolph, long before gifts, trees, ornaments, and even Christmas carols, there was a baby that was found in Bethlehem lying in a manger. And that baby didn't just symbolize something. That baby was God. God came from heaven to earth. And I will tell you, if we find ourselves being distracted by the things of this world, by the busyness of the season, then we are no different than the world. Oh, this may be the most wonderful time of the year, but at the end of it, on the 25th or 26th of December, you will go back to not being uh, any different than you were at the beginning of December. We as Christians must be transformed by the story of Christmas. Well, how are we to do that? How are we to get beyond all the things that surround this season? The materialism of gifts, all the other entrapments of the world. How do we get there? We must take our lens of life and we must begin to focus it back in on that story. And to enjoy that story, to embrace that story of Christmas. Well, a doctor 2,000 years ago shares this about the story in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read together the famous narrative of this incredible time that we call Christmas. This is what it says. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, this was the first census that took place while Curnius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth uh, in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Verse 8 says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David... A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. When the angels had left them, And gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them, in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they 
had been told. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, during this final week of the celebration of your coming, Lord, I pray for us as a church. No one else, Lord, um, in particular, but just the people that call Village Bible Church their home. Lord, that we would be a people who would celebrate Christmas for the right reasons. Father, I pray that we would be focused in on You and Your coming what it means to us that grace came near, that God uh, put skin on, that you came uh, to redeem us, a people who were lost in our sin. Lord, it doesn't mean we've got to, um, if you will, legalistically just throw everything else away and say that, that that's the only thing we can do. But Lord, let us uh, put it into perspective. <clears throat> Lord, change our hearts. Uh, remind us that all the stuff that our world is a part of um, is, is, is as, as I said before, Lord, uh, just children's fun and games. Uh, and Lord, that we would uh, uh, not focus on those things but on you, that we would teach our children those things, that we would, uh, Father, bring our families and our friends to that understanding, that we would, uh, as the shepherds did, articulate with great excitement what that baby in Bethlehem was all about. Lord, remind us of it as we look to your word this morning and as we realize today that Christmas is all about your son, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and honor and praise in this celebration and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. So how are we to get there this morning? How are we to get to a place that we begin to celebrate Christ during our time of celebration for Christmas? There are three things I think that we need to do from Luke 2 verses 1 through 20 that will help us to put Christ back in the forefront of our celebration when it comes to Christmas. The first thing that we need to do, if we want to make it all about Jesus, is we must recognize, we must recognize the fulfilled prophecy of Christmas. The fulfilled prophecy of Christmas. Christmas was an event that happened by chance. We need to recognize that Christmas was something that was talked about long before uh, the wise men and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph, long before the introduction of even the New Testament and the, and the times in the first century, long before all that, Christmas was in the mind of God. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3 Verse 15, of course, in Genesis 1, we're seeing the creation story. In Genesis 2, we're seeing God uh, involving himself with man and spending time with man, telling man to manage, to be a steward of, of the creation that God had created in chapter 1 of Genesis. But in Genesis, at the end of Genesis uh, chapter 2, we see man gets a helpmate. Of course, Adam then uh, is given Eve. And they're spending time in the garden. But notice in chapter 3, if you have a heading in the Bible, what does your heading say at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3? 
the fall of man. We know the story. Adam and Eve are enjoying the perfection of the garden. And God's given them a rule. Don't eat from that tree in the middle of the garden. And they've got everything to enjoy, all at their pleasure. They can have all of it. And yet what happens? Well, we know Adam and Eve start looking at that tree and start wondering what that tree may taste like. And in a time of weakness, a serpent comes. We know that serpent to be the devil. Comes and tempts Eve that if she was to eat it, she would become like God. God was being a killjoy, Satan would say. Satan's saying, hey, you should have all of it. Why would God keep you from it? It's so good. It's so wonderful to be a part of. And we know that then uh, Eve takes the fruit, eats of it, gives it to her husband. He eats of it as well. And now we've got a problem. Man who had a relationship with God. Now it was not only tarnished, but there was separation between man and his creator. And we see that God comes. He walks into the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and He starts calling out to Adam. Adam! Adam, come on out! I want to talk with you, Adam. Have you ever had that happen as a kid? You, you know you've done something wrong and your mom or dad comes out and uh, you hear them because you're hiding in your room or in some closet and you hear, come on out, Adam. come on out, Junior, come on out. And I want to talk with you and you're fearful. Well, Adam and Eve, of course, are fearful. They're shamed because they know at that point that they're naked and they do not want to uh, be revealed in that manner. And God comes and says, come on over here. We need to talk. And Genesis 3 uh, begins to lay out some of the consequences of their sin. The first consequence that comes uh, to, uh, to them in the text is, is to the serpent. Cursed are you, in verse 14, above all livestock and above all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put an enmity between you and the woman. He goes on in verse 16, he says, how about uh, you, Eve? What am I going to do with you? Because you ate, because you found yourself being tempted, I'm going to increase your pains in childbearing. and pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and, you, and he will rule over you. Then he goes to Adam and he says, Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree in verse 17 that you were told not to, cursed is the ground because of you. You're going to have painful toil. You'll eat of the ground all the days of your life, and yet it will produce thorns and thistles. It will, uh, Even though you eat of the plants, you're going to have to sweat for it. You're going to also find yourself returning to the ground, meaning you're going to die. And you're going to go back to what you were because you came from dust, and dust you shall return. And so God hands out the punishments. He hands out the groundings in Genesis 3. And yet we see a prophecy that takes place in the middle of all those curses. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking of the serpent. And between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I wonder what the devil was thinking at that moment. We know the devil isn't uh, omniscient. We know he doesn't know all things. And yet he knew that there was a day coming that there would be one, an offspring from the woman who would give a death blow to him. That he would be out of business, if you will, as a result of this child that would come. And yet God says Christmas is coming. 
The reason for Christmas isn't so we can just celebrate the birth of a child, but it is the reminder for us as believers that God fulfilled His promise. When we were in our weakest, most powerless state in Genesis 3, verse 15, God says, let me promise you something. It won't always be that way. It won't. I'm going to send an offspring, an offspring of the woman. Now turn in your Bibles for a moment to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. Because it brings into uh, the picture then uh, Genesis 3 and, and the time that was spent and, and the planning and all the things that needed to come together. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, Galatians chapter 4, has this in uh, verse 4. It says, in uh, starting in uh, verse 3, So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. That's us after Genesis chapter 3. We're slaves to the world. But when the time had fully come, the, the picture there is of a, of a celestial hourglass, the sands of time falling from the top to the bottom. And until that top was done, God says, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. And when that last particle of sand hits the bottom, what does he say? It's time. Notice what he says. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, it's her offspring, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. When we celebrate Christmas, we must understand that before uh, Christmas was celebrated in Bethlehem, it was in the mind of God. Before uh, Adam, um, before Mary and Joseph would ever walk on the face of the earth, Christmas was on the mind of God. And he would declare this at different times. To the prophets, we know Isaiah would speak about this Christmas celebration where he would speak about a woman giving birth. She would be found with a child while still being a virgin. Micah would declare it, as I'll, as I'll get to in a moment, speaking about the place of Bethlehem where Christ would be born. And so what we need to recognize is this isn't something that just happened, but it is something that was in the heart of God before the foundations of the earth. And so look at what Luke says. He says at the beginning of this that uh, he gets right into it and he begins to unveil the present part of the story. In those days, Caesar Augustus. We need to know who is this Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the nephew of a very famous leader named Julius Caesar. This guy had uh, quite a, uh, a family line. And he was uh, known for being one who liked to extend his sense of power. It wasn't that he was a bad uh, Caesar, but that he was one who kind of enjoyed his own press. He enjoyed the sense of power that he had. Now, historians tell us that uh, uh, Caesar Augustus was one who uh, did some pretty impressive things as uh, the king or as the Caesar. He did wonderful uh, municipal uh, improvements to the area around him. But he did it always with the wrong motive in mind, and it was to get more press about himself. 
And yet amidst this king that would uh, try to uh, gain fame and gain notoriety, it would be during his time, during his rule, that he would find himself issuing a decree where God would move him in such a way to be a part of the prophecy that God had. He issues this, this, this decree. What's it for? That a census would be taken. A census, as you know, is a time where uh, a government counts people. And the reason why the government counts people, especially in the Roman days, was that they wanted to enforce a tax. And so what would happen is they say, everybody go to their town. We want to get money from you. We want to make sure that we get uh, the right amount of money. So if you will, this was a uh, nationwide audit by the uh, tax company in Rome. Justin Martyr, who lived about 150 years after the death of Christ, uh, would go on in one of his uh, uh, journals of history and he would say that you could go to Rome and see the logs of these census. That you could go and you could find out who lived where. That's an incredible thought. That 150 years after Christ had lived and died that you could go to Rome and you could look up the census, the tally, who went where and uh, where did they live now. And because of that, the amazing thought is, is that God is at work. So what takes place? He says the census took place. Everyone went to their own town to register. Verse 4 says, Now Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem. That's where he lives. Nazareth to Bethlehem is about an 80-mile journey. Now, if you were uh, to walk uh, two miles um, in an hour, which is about the normal time it would take you to walk on a uh, flat piece of uh, pavement, two miles an hour, it would have been much slower than that uh, with a pregnant woman. It would have taken somewhere in the neighborhood of at least a week, probably 10 days to two weeks of a journey to take place. And so we see that all the parts are being moved into place. A census is taken. Why? Because we've got Joseph and Mary who need to be in Bethlehem because that's what the prophets foretold. So what do we know about this place called Bethlehem? They go to Bethlehem. What is it like? It's a small town. Not much about it. It's mentioned only a few times in the Bible. We saw Bethlehem being mentioned in the book of Ruth at the beginning of Ruth. We see Bethlehem mentioned in First and Second Samuel, of course, where David grew up. But each time it's brought up, little is made of this town. It's not much different than probably in the grand scheme of things, Sugar Grove. A lot of people, if you were to go 20 miles in in a radius of any direction, many people wouldn't even know about the town of Sugar Grove. They would hear of Aurora. They would hear of Chicago, but they wouldn't know of Sugar Grove. In fact, Sugar Grove is is a good uh, comparison uh, to it because uh, Sugar, I'm sorry, uh, Bethlehem was five miles south of a big city called Jerusalem. Five miles south, not not too different than us from the big city of Aurora, and yet this town would have incredible significance. Notice there are two truths about Bethlehem we need to understand. First of all, it was a place that was prophesied in the scriptures. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah for a moment. If you're in the book of Matthew, you're going to just go back. I'm sorry, you're in Luke, so you'd go back. Mark, Matthew, uh, then the book of Malachi. We remember that book as we studied it. Zechariah. Then you would be in the book of Haggai. We studied that book as well. Zephaniah, all great names for your children. 
Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on what your uh, background is. Nahum, another great name for someone. And then you find the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5, look at what is articulated there. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says here, now this is 700 years before the time of Christmas, but you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. 700 years before Bethlehem would become known for the Christmas story, Micah would be moved by the Holy Spirit to articulate the truth that God had a plan for this small city. But notice, it's not just seen in Scripture that God would use this incredible place. But it's a truth that we must remember as well because just as God had a plan for Bethlehem, He has a plan for you and I as well. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, God chose us before the foundations of the world. And then he says in uh, Ephesians 2.10 that he chose us to conform us to be like his son in Ephesians. And then uh, he says uh, later that we have a job to do. That before the foundations of the world, we were created in Christ to do good works that God had for us in advance. This little town is a wonderful reminder that though we may be small, God has a plan for us. And it's a plan that's been unveiled in Scripture. But notice there's a place of incredible symbolism as well. There's powerful symbolism when it comes to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was known, if you remember our study in Ruth, it was known as the house of what? The house of steel? No. The house of plastic? No. The house of pork chops? No. Um, Help me out. The house of bread. It's the house of bread. John chapter 6, verse 35 says that Jesus Christ called himself the bread of life. How wonderful is it that the bread of life came to the house of bread to be born. But Bethlehem was known for something else that is symbolized in the person and work of Christ. And that is that Bethlehem was known as a hub for shepherding. We see that throughout the text. David from Bethlehem was a shepherd. We see that there were shepherds nearby. If you were to go to Bethlehem today, it would still be a place where you would find shepherds. The reason why is Bethlehem sits on a uh, range of hills, and on each side of the hills are fertile valleys that would be good uh, for uh, shepherding sheep, herding the sheep to good and uh, luscious food for them to eat. So here is this place of shepherds. And who would come and be born in a place of shepherds but Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the flock. Now you say, well, why is all this important? The reason why all this is important, that we remember that Bethlehem was a place of great prophecy, 
is because if we forget it, we begin to think that all this happened by chance. And as a result of that, it's really not that big of a deal. It just kind of happened and it makes for a great story. And yet, listen to what uh, John Piper says about this thought. He says, have you ever thought about what an amazing thing it is that God ordained beforehand that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? And that he so ordained things that when the time came, the Messiah's mother and legal father were living in Nazareth, that in order to fulfill God's plans to bring two little people to Bethlehem that Christmas, God would have to put it in the heart of Caesar Augustus that all the Roman world would have to be enrolled in each of their towns. Have you ever felt like me, little and insignificant, in a world of more than six billion people where all the news is of big political and economic and social movements and of outstanding people who have lots of power and prestige? And yet if you have, don't it make you feel disheartened or unhappy? For it is implicit that in Scripture that all the mammoth political forces and all the giant industrial complexes, without their even knowing it, are being guided by God. Not for their own sake, but for the sake of God's little people. The little Mary, the little Joseph, that little town called Bethlehem. It is because of them that God wields an empire to bless His children. Do not think because you experience adversity that the hand of the Lord is shortened. It is not our prosperity, but our holiness that He seeks with all His heart. And to that end, God rules the whole world. As Proverbs 21.1 tells us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. He is a big God. He is a big God for little people and we have great cause to rejoice in it because unbeknownst to them all the kings and presidents, premiers, chancellors of the world follow the sovereign decrees of our Father in heaven that we, the children of God, might be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is not just an empty celebration that happened as a result of man putting some different things together. But this is a celebration of God bringing His promise from Genesis 3 to fulfillment. Once we understand the prophecy and all that God did to see that happen and take place, there's a second thing we must look at. And that is we must remember. We must remember. Once we recognize what Christmas is all about, the plan of God being not only revealed but laid out before us, We must remember. And what must we remember? The famous proclamation of Christmas. The message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is seen in Luke chapter 2. Get back to our text this morning. Luke chapter 2. And in Luke 2, we see a couple things. We see the angel appears to shepherds. Shepherds out in the fields, just doing their business, just focusing in on their jobs, just making sure they take care of what they've been asked to take care of. They're minding themselves and, and all of a sudden an angel appears to them. And the angel, it says in verse 10, says, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He says, here's the sign. You want to know what the sign is? It's not just any baby, but it's a baby wrapped in cloths. And lying in a manger, that's the key part because being wrapped would have been anything special. A a baby wouldn't have been anything special in even a town like Bethlehem. But lying in a manger, 
And yet after that, there's a great company of the heavenly host who appeared to them uh, with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. There's the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is the angels come and announce that God has good news. God has good news. The story of Christmas uh, is surrounded, even Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph and, and the wise men and, and the shepherds, all of them are supporting cast to what the angels are announcing. God has good news. He has good news. And we need to remember what that good news is that's articulated in that proclamation. Let's look at what it talks about. First of all, we see that this message of Christmas is a peaceful message. It's a peaceful message. In verse 10, the angel appears to them. Now understand the uh, shepherds at this time, they had to have been incredibly fearful. If they had known anything of Hebrew history, they would have known that angels usually brought the pain. They weren't always good things to see an angel. In fact, there are very limited times that are recorded in Scripture where an angel came to the aid of an individual. But mostly, especially in Hebrew tradition, angels were ones who brought destruction or who brought times of cursing. And so what would take place is, is that an angel would appear and, and, and part of the reason why every time an angel appeared people were afraid that they would ask, what kind of greeting is this? Remember, that's the, the question that uh, Mary brings up. She wants to know, am I in trouble? Is there a curse coming? Is there an issue that, that I'm going to be um, dealt with in, in my life? She wants to know. Angels were known to bring pain. They were known to be used to bring destruction. And yet the message that God has, that the angels bring, is do not fear. Do not fear. What a message for us today in the time of issues of unemployment, in the time where there's political uncertainty, in a time where it seems that terrorists could uh, plot any kind of plan and, and, and uh, bring forth their terror to us at any moment in time, peace is an amazing message. A time of great destruction and sadness, God brings peace. Now, the amazing thing about God bringing peace, the good news about peace, isn't so much that anybody can say, hey, I've got some good news for you. But the good news that God brings is incredible good news, and it brings incredible peace. The reason why is, remember back to Genesis 3, we've got a problem with God. The only thing we deserve as uh, people of this world is that God would come, and the only thing he would say is, I'm going to destroy you. You've got, you've got sin in your life. You've rebelled against me. And what do I do with rebels? I destroy them. I take care of them in a way that I, I get them out of the way. I deal with them in the way they must be dealt with. And yet the message of Christmas is, do not fear. It's a message of peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that because of Christ, even though we had a problem with sin, Christ allowed us, because of His work on the cross, to have peace with God. You and I, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, can have peace with God. You don't have to tremble at the thought of what God may do, but you can have peace. The Scripture's full of it. Let me just share. I'm, not, I'm just going to share the words of Scripture to you. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. 
Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. Why? Because you should cast all your anxieties on God because He cares for you. This Lord of ours is our light and our salvation. And as a result of that, whom shall we fear? Because the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord's calling someone today to that message. Some of you got that. You guys are, man, you guys are tired today. The Lord brought peace. Have you ever been in a time where you've been so agitated by the things of this world and someone brought word? I've had this as an employer where an event's going bad and it doesn't seem like anything is going to be fixed. And then all of a sudden, some uh, event takes place in the event, whether it is that God supernaturally uh, allows uh, food to be done a lot quicker than it should be, or or things to change, or the people say, you know what, we're going to run a little late today, we apologize, and everything to work well. And there's this sense of peace. All is well. Spiritually, because of Christ, we can stand before God knowing all is well. But notice, it isn't just a peaceful message. It's a positive one. It says, I bring you good news of great joy. This good news is literally the gospel. The gospel of great joy. This wasn't a warning or a threat. This wasn't a curse. This wasn't something that God was saying is, is bad news. I've got to share some tough news with you. I've got to uh, deal with uh, some issues in your life. He says, I've got some good news. I love this. This good news was shown by God's grace and mercy. And in a time where man was asking uh, for uh, people to give, God was saying this is the time where people should receive. When man was being taxed, God was saying, I've got something even better than a refund. It is the Son that is mine, Jesus Christ. It's a word that is positive. We need a positive message today, don't we? We have a lot of negative things going on in our world, and the world needs to hear the positive message of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't deal with sin, and we don't deal with things like repentance, and we don't deal with with God's wrath and judgment. But the message is, is that God has made a way of escape. God has made a way that we can experience grace and mercy. And because of that grace and mercy, we no longer have to fear those things because we are at peace with God. It's a positive message. Notice it's a personal message as well. Who's it for? He says, the Savior has been born to you. Look at what it says in verse 11. He's Christ the Lord. He goes on in verse 12 saying, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Who's this message for? Was this message just for uh, Joseph and Mary? No. Was this message just for the shepherds? No. Was the message just for the Jewish people? No. We see that even wise men came from far off to be a part of this. We know that we would come later in life, centuries after the birth of Christ, and that this message of peace, this message that was positive, would be a message that could be applied to you and I. The thing I love about this is is that it's first given to shepherds. If you don't know about first century shepherds, they were the low of lows. They were ones that were untrusted. They were the ones that uh, people didn't care about. It was a job that nobody wanted to do. And, And if you were a shepherd, 
You didn't have a status in society. You were too low or below that uh, social ladder to even be a part of it. And yet, who does God come to first? Who does the angel announce the good news to? Those that the world says are no good. Understand this in the message of Christmas. Christmas reminds us that the good news message are for those across all social parts of the social landscape. Why? Because God starts with the lowest of lows. You cannot be too low for God. You cannot be too messed up for God. You cannot be uh, too unloved for God. But notice that then he also goes and he says, hey, wise men, uh, these great uh, uh, men of the East who had uh, so much wealth and so much ability that they get up on their camels and they head out with an entourage, many historians believe, and they bring expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Expensive gifts. And what does that teach us? That God isn't just the God of the low people, but he's the God of wherever you may be. He's the God of the rich. He's the God of the poor. He's the God of the unpopular. He's the God of the popular. You can't be anything in life and be too far out of the reach of the good news of God. The Savior came. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Whatever else we have in our lives makes no difference. We are lost and need to be found. The next thing we see is that it was personal. It's purposeful as well. This message speaks about a person. It says in the text, it's speaking of Christ the Lord. Now, why would he come? It doesn't say why he comes, except it says that he was the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And we know from the prophets that the Messiah would come, uh, that he may uh, become the king of his people, that the Messiah would come to bring peace to his people. Well, how would he do it? There are three things that Jesus came to do that makes his birth purposeful. The first thing was, is he came and he was born, first of all, to die violently on a cross. Write that down. He came to die violently on a cross. Why was he born? What was the purpose? So that we could celebrate his first birthday? No, it was that he could die. Luke chapter 22, verse 33 tells us that Christ at the age of 33 would go uh, to a place outside the city called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And Christ would be placed between two thieves and he'd be hung on a cross, the most difficult and most gruesome way to die in those days, being hung on a cross, being unable to breathe and waiting for you to suffocate after hours of agony and pain. Why did Jesus come? He came so that he might die a violent death. Why? So that he could die vicariously. Write that down. So he could die vicariously. Isaiah 53, let me read that for us this morning. Isaiah 53, again, hundreds of years before Christ would come. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before us like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But notice, 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The reason why Jesus came to die is because we needed peace. We needed peace because we were at odds with God. We were enemies of God. And God says, I need to bring peace back to sinners. And he sends his son to die in our behalf. Finally, Jesus came to be born so that he might die victoriously for our salvation. John 19.30 says, before he gave up his spirit on the cross of Calvary, he uttered the words, it is finished. Why did he do that? He did it to announce to the world, to announce to the spiritual uh, realm as well as the physical that he himself had conquered sin. Where is the victory that now death has, Paul asks. Where is the sting of death? Death being the, the natural consequence of sin, it was now gone. And now, because of Christ, there was no sting for those who had trusted him because it was finished. What is the message of Christmas? The message of Christmas isn't what we as Americans portray it to be. It is a time to remember that Christ was born so that he could die. That was in the heart of God. It wasn't somewhere around his 15th birthday that God said, Hey, Jesus, things got to change. I I didn't see this coming, but uh, we're going to move you to uh, not just be this great king and one who people would love and adore, but now you're going to be hated and you're going to be abused and and they're going to hang you on a cross. It was in the plan of God long before. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, because it isn't just that a baby was born, but our Savior was born and that our Savior would be born, live a life of perfection, that he could die on our behalf. So what do we do? Finally, there's a third thing we see, and that is we want to make Jesus uh, all that Christmas is. We need to respond. We need to respond with faith filled practices during Christmas. How do we respond? What is our application for this week of Christmas? Is it to uh, just bring uh, Christmas joy to the world? Or does it involve some things? Notice what it did uh, for those uh, that were involved in the first one. It says, After the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. The shepherds glorify, or I'm sorry, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that had been heard and seen, which they were t- just as they had been told. What's the response? What do we do uh, when it comes to Christmas? There are three things that I want you to remember. If you want to respond in a way that people will see that Christ is everything in regards to your Christmas, then it should involve your witness. It should involve your witness. I want to give you a task this week. When you gather together with your family, I want you to pray that God will give you an opportunity to share the real story of Christmas. That God will allow you to open your mouth and to be able to share your experience of Christ. The shepherds had experienced something amazing. And what do they do? They say, hey, let's go to Bethlehem. And they see exactly what the shepherds, uh, what, what they had seen, what the angels had told them. And so the shepherds come and they go to the manger and they find Mary and Joseph and the baby just as they had been told. And what does it say they do? Do they go on a book tour? 
you know, that's what many people would do these days, wouldn't they? They would get up and say, I was a part of this great thing. I saw angels. Now it's time for me to go on the Oprah show and have my book uh, talked about all these wonderful experiences. It doesn't say that. It says they went out and told others. What have we experienced? We've experienced the Christ of Christmas. And as a result of that celebration, as a result of what we've seen, just as we saw and as we have been told in the scriptures, we've seen it unveiled before us. What is our job? It is to go to others and share with them. The text tells us that they were all amazed. Those that heard it were amazed. Is that the only response that will happen? No, because we know the story of Christmas was shared with a man named Herod and he was filled with rage, not amazement. He was filled with anger, not joy over the birth of a baby. I'm going to tell you something. When you announce the real meaning of Christmas, people are going to get upset. I have a family member uh, in, that I will see this uh, upcoming week who despises the real story of Christmas. A couple years ago, I was told to turn off that garbage, the Christmas carols, because it isn't just about some baby. You're going to get responses even by those that you call your family. But I will tell you something. If you truly believe that is the story of Christmas, then announce it. Share it with the world around you. Don't just be one who gives good cheer. That will finish up on the 26th. It's amazing. I was hearing a story of uh, gridlock when the weather came in this last week on WGN. And they were talking about how nice people were. And even though they were in traffic for four hours, there were no uh, one finger salutes to one another and all those different things that we normally do. And one caller said, that is the spirit of Christmas. So that we sin less? That's the spirit of Christmas? No, my friends. The spirit of Christmas is that we are sinners and Christ came to die. And our job is to announce it to the world. Don't just give good cheer. Be a witness. Next, it says that Mary pondered these things. There's wonder in it as well. Have you ever sat back as Mary probably did that night of Christmas, looking at her child, remembering, saying, this is amazing. I've not been with a man and and here I am not pregnant anymore, but now I'm a mom. How did that happen? I've experienced uh, an interaction with an angel. I've experienced the the uncanny thought that uh, my uh, engaged uh, fiancé would stay with me even though it would seem by every human standpoint that I cheated on him that he would stay because not only did I hear from an angel, but he heard from an angel as well. That's That's amazing. And we find ourselves in the hustle and bustle of running to Bethlehem to, uh, to be a part of a census. And we find ourselves that there's no room anywhere for us. And we find ourselves in a back a barn or some sort of cave. And yet now uh, shepherds come and they say they've seen an angel. That's amazing. And they have heard about our child. That doesn't, you know, what Hebrew girls had ever had that kind of story. And then to look at her child. The child in the manger who looked just like any other baby. One of the commentaries said that we glorify the first night of uh, of the Christmas story. And we talk about this baby just so gentle and and so quiet. And, And one said, how do we not know that the Christ didn't have colic? That the Christ didn't have acid reflux? I wonder what Jesus was like as a child. You know, we get this picture. He's this little baby with a halo, you know, over him. You know, uh, I've had some newborn babies. They smell funny. They cry a lot. 
And, and it's not very, uh, it's not very glamorous, is it? And yet I look at my little boy, little Luke right now, and I look at him. He's just a normal baby, just like me, human, no divinity. And yet Mary would look at Jesus and she would look into the very face of God. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever pondered that? God put skin on. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God came near. Our children are flesh and bones. And that's a wonderful thing in and of itself. And Mary would look and look at the face of God. How much time have you spent thinking, pondering the thoughts of Christmas? As believers, the world uh, can do whatever they want. But as believers, God says it is good for us to remember. It's good for us to ponder, to wonder. The things that impacted that day should be things that still impact our heart. Finally, there should be worship. Look at what it says in verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were done just as they had been told. What part of worship is a part of your Christmas celebration? Is it something that you have as a natural part of your life? Is it something that brings you to praise? My friends, we can't have Christmas. If we don't have Christmas, we don't have Easter. If we don't have Easter, we don't have uh, salvation. Does it bring us to a place that we worship God? You know who we worship in our day and age? A big fat dude with a white beard and a red suit who's jolly whose cheeks are rosy. And because He gives gifts, we worship Him. We give Him praise. We give Him glory. And who are we to give it to? Jesus Christ. We've made this Santa so big and so glamorous, and yet at the end of the day, He is nothing. He's a figment of our... I'm going to stop there. But... um, I see that we got some younger than 20 people in here. So leave it at that. I don't want to get in any trouble. But uh, but you know what? Where should he be? Way down here. Where should the giver of our gifts be? Somewhere around here. Where is family? Somewhere around here. And yet all those things are way up here. And we find Christ and the story of Christmas down here. Let me ask you a question. How much time have you set aside to worship and witness and wonder about Christmas? And how much time, and I'm going to hit hard, how much time have you planned where you're going to be, what gifts you're going to give, what card is going to go to who, and what side dish you're going to bring to your Christmas celebration? The world gets away with it, my friends. But as Christians, we are to do what the shepherds and Mary did that Christmas. Is Christmas all about Jesus? In your heart, can you say that this morning? Is Christmas all about Christ? I'm not saying you got to get rid of all this stuff. I'm just saying put it in the right slots. Because if we don't do that, at the end of that great day of Christmas, and it'll be great, it'll be exciting, it'll be wonderful, there will be a sense that it's all over. And yet when we put Christ at at the place where he needs to be of prominence in Christmas, every day becomes Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I pray for us as a congregation. 
Lord, that this week would not be a week filled with distractions, but would be a week that is dedicated to you. Father, I pray that uh, we would not uh, in this way uh, become, as the old story is, uh, being a Scrooge. But Lord, that we would be ones who would continually remind amidst all the jubilation and all the excitement of the season that we would keep bringing you into the forefront. The gifts are great, but Jesus. Santa's great, but Jesus. The food and the cookies are great, but Jesus. Family is great, but Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would continue to bring you back to your place. The season that carries your name the season that involves your coming, no one else's. Lord, let us bring you back to your place of prominence. Let us bring you back to your place of worship. Let us bring you back to a place that we will wonder about you, not about an inhabitant from the North Pole, but we would have wonder and awe of your coming and excitement that, Lord, it would fill our hearts and we would tell the world around us, not just Merry Christmas, but that Christ has come to save sinners like me. Lord, to do that, we have to turn our eyes to you this morning. Focus in on you. Give ourselves to you. And it is there that we will see your glory and grace. The glory of grace that came that Christmas morning. Lord, let us see that this morning. Let us open our eyes that we can recognize that and see what Christmas is and what it has for us today in this world of terror, trial, and times of great unknown, that we remember you came to bring peace. Not that the world could have or could produce on its own, but Lord, the peace that only you can bring. Lord, let us live in light of that. In your Son's name, amen.